0: Welcome to OnScript's Biblical World, a podcast exploring the history, archaeology, geography, and cultures of the Bible. Visit us at onscript.study/biblical-world.
1: Hey everyone, welcome back to the Biblical World podcast. This is Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. In this episode, uh, you're going to hear the first chunk of an interview I did with Colin Cornell, and. Because we focus on Elephantine, a Jewish colony, military colony on the Nile in Egypt, um, I thought it would be a good portion of an episode to play on this podcast. So uh, eventually you hear the rest of it on on OnScript, our other podcast. Um, But we're going to be focusing on Elephantine, so it really fit with the content of this Biblical World podcast. So uh, we're playing that for you here. Hope you enjoy that. And so the intro... um, We'll make it sound like we're going to cover more territory, which we do eventually, and you can hear that longer one on our other podcast, on script, but it's not out yet. So um, hope you enjoy this. Thanks so much for listening. Welcome back, everyone. Our guest today is Dr. Colin Cornell, who is the Provost Candler Postdoctoral Teaching Fellow at Candler School of Theology and Emory University, Colin is the author of Divine Aggression in Psalms and Inscriptions, Vengeful Gods and Loyal Kings, and he's the editor of two books, first of all, Divine Doppelgangers, Yahweh's Ancient Lookalikes, and a forthcoming volume called The Incomparable God Readings in Biblical Theology, uh, which is a collection of Brent Strawn's essays. He's also co-translated from Dutch the book Biblical ABCs, The Basics of Christian Resistance, which is a book about K.H. Miskota, and uh, he's got projects in the works right now. So, Colin, welcome to OnScript.
0: Thanks so much, Matt. I am truly grateful to be here. Uh, I feel like this is crossing some uh, thresholds and rite of passage as a biblical scholar. Um, I count myself maybe not a super fan, but uh, that's a, that's a very distinguished you know elite, uh echelon. But a, but a mega fan at least. of, okay. of The podcast. All right.
1: All right, that's a new category. So, so thanks for carving out that space. Uh, yeah, Colin, I've I've long admired your your range as a scholar and, and seeing the the sort of uh, interests that you've pursued both in kind of history of ancient Israelite religion, biblical studies, biblical theology, theology proper. Um, so, I'm, I'm wondering if you could talk first uh, about what kind of drew you into this range of areas, um, why you've not stayed put in one lane, um, and but also like some of the driving concerns that might unify those different pursuits that you've had.
0: Yeah, it's a good question. And uh, um, I appreciate the kind of uh, uh, game recognizing game in terms of range, because um, you're, you're rather a roving, uh, roving the local scholar yourself. Um, but as far as uh, not keeping to one lane, it's interesting that you frame it like that, because uh, I do tend myself to see, in spite of I, I you know, admit the the diversity of um, kind of areas that my writings have covered, uh, that it it really does boil down to one one big lane. Um, my primary uh, interest uh, is, if you will, um, God. And I know that probably most of the theological disciplines would uh, lay claim to that, but I tend to think about, most of what I do is as at, at most a half step away from the questions about the person and profile of God. And so some of the works I've done uh, address God in kind of a historical key. You mentioned the religion historical pieces. So that's tracing out the ways that concepts of God um, respond to historical events, circumstances, changes uh, of intellectual regimen and so on. So kind of God in a historical key. And then uh, plenty of other uh, stuff I've pursued has looked into God in a more constructive direction. So, how do worshiping communities, particularly Christians, um, talk in responsible, interesting, uh, promising, um, galvanizing ways about God, uh, the living God? So, but it all orbits around the person and profile of God.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, you're you're describing one big lane there, um, but in some ways those are often at odds with one another, doing so, like pursuing those questions of God in a historical key and in a constructive key. So, are there any models that you've had of people that have integrated those well that you're kind of looking to, or do you feel like you're flying solo? What's how do you position your relationship to other scholars who? have pursued that endeavor. And, and I know there's, you know, there's the theological interpretation of scripture sort of pathway that some have tried to carve out. And I'm curious of where you've positioned yourself in that sense.
0: Yeah. Uh, the question about, about uh, precursors, precedents, mentors is a good and interesting one. I have at times felt as if I haven't had a, a go-to off-the-shelf model for the kind of scholarship i want to do although i will say i was really fortunate to have as my doctoral advisor brent strawn who is somebody who i think uh, moves between domains uh, within biblical studies well um and kind of with rare uh, breadth um so uh, but you're right there are i didn't have many other examples of how to, how to do that well and so um, I think how I'm shuttling between these considerations about how concepts of God are embedded in their context, how they're how they are responsive to cultural, linguistic kind of changes, um, and and how that in some way disciplines, interacts, chastens the kind of ways that we want to launch, you know, live claims about who God is in the world today uh, is kind of still experimental for me, and I've tried out a number of different avenues along that um, way. And as far as your, your second part of your question about theological interpretation, I, I've been a, an avid follower and reader of works in that vein, uh, really since, it, since the Journal uh, of Theological Interpretation launched. Um, and I've occasionally contributed to those kind of venues. Um, I think, though, if I had to say something about how I locate myself relative to theological interpretation, it's as somebody who's been deeply appreciative uh, of some of the main players in that field, um, and also as somebody who is maybe still interested in the kind of revisionary potential of biblical theologizing. So I'm, I, I do, at the end of the day, trust that uh, the kinds of findings that biblical scholars, uh, even ones working in critical and historical modes, Uh, discern that they ultimately are convergent with the kind of deep core claims made by our Christian tradition. But I don't want to close that distance too quickly. And sometimes I'm a a little bit uh, uneasy um, with with linking ourselves too directly back into past eras uh, of classic interpretation, the kind of moves that our our forebears in faith have made are are good and and right, and we can learn much from them, I have, um, but not to repristinate. Not uh, to sort of try to try to reprise them directly uh, in our own situation without at least some really thoughtful recalibration.
1: Yeah. Um, so I, I want to start out by talking about your interest in elephantine, and uh, for listeners who aren't familiar with what that is at all, I'm wondering if you could start out by just giving an introduction to what elephantine is and some of its significance for. Uh, the history of uh, Judaism and, um, you know, thinking about Persian period literature and so on.
0: Yeah. So um, Elephantini became kind of a joke actually at the the seminary where I taught for three and a half years, uh, simply because I would uh, bring it up so much and I could sort of leave a beat uh, in sermons given in the seminary chapel, um, start to segue towards, you know, there was this ancient Jewish community kind of leave a pause and the and, and students would be able to fill in the blank um, because uh, of how I brought up elephantini. And I, I'm just going to go with, just going to run uh, sin boldly with Elecantini. Um Maybe that's, we'll say that's the reconstructed Koine pronunciation or, or some such. Um, yeah, uh, thank you. Um, but uh, anyway, so what, what is it? That is the name of an island in the Nile at the very southernmost border of both ancient and modern Egypt. And the reason it's of interest to folks like us is because there was a community, um, a garrison, a military outpost. Um, I'm unclear myself exactly how directly everybody who was involved in the larger community of Aramaic-speaking people there was kind of serving in the military uh, garrison. Uh, But at any rate, kind of a a military outpost, a fortress facing southwards, trying to uh, ward off incursions from Nubia, uh, but also um, probably more directly, honestly, to suppress revolts of the subject native Egyptians. Uh, So uh, the time period, though, we're talking about is the 5th century. um, So 400s, a little bit into the 300s. BCE. Uh, And again, the reason it's of interest to folks like us is because among the Aramaic speaking peoples who uh, populated the community, who served in the garrison, uh, were Jews or Judeans. You know, there's some dispute about the rectitude of of that, you know, whichever nomenclature. But at any rate, folks who are worshiping the Lord, the biblical God, who uh, served the Lord in a temple there uh, that they had on the island. Uh, and who um, you know are in other ways uh, sort of off the map of what we might expect of religiously observant um, Second Temple Jews. So that's the interest is what what were they doing down there? Uh, and there's also a sort of remarkable drama to do with the destruction of that temple that they had done there at the at the instigation of the local native Egyptians who resented the. Um, the colonization of the, of the Achaemenid Persian empire. And the Jews were sort of the middlemen in that situation, um, the foot soldiers of the empire. Uh, And so they were kind of caught up in the crossfire, as it were, the native Egyptians trying to throw off Persian rule. And the nearest people they can reach are the Judeans. So they can, you know, poison their well and (laughs) knock down their temple. And so that's what they arranged to do.
1: Yeah. I I have a story about um, this Island. I was Back in 2011, I went with my uh, family and in-laws on a, like, Aswan to Luxor, sort of Nile boat ride, and, and we went by Elephantine, and I said to our guide, I said, hey, that's, uh, I can't believe we're right here, and there was a Jewish colony there, and and he's like, no, there wasn't. And I said, yeah, there was, there's, there's you know, paprological evidence about them. And, you know, we, we can actually read about this. He's like, no, there wasn't. There was no Jewish community there. So I was like, okay, that's the official line. <laughs> so it was a very odd thing. I don't, I don't know what kind of politically was behind that or what, but it was a, it was a very strange uh, encounter. So I, I, we, we proceeded past it. I did not get off and I wish I had, and been able to, you know, dig around in the dirt a bit. But anyway, that was my brush with uh, Elfantine.
0: <laughs> interesting. Interesting. Maybe, yeah, I, I'm curious about that. Some, some, um, I don't know, some political misgivings or, or unease with yeah. that history. Who knows yeah. what's going on there? But yeah, that is really intriguing. Yeah, I don't actually course. know myself what you would have even been able to see had you gotten off the boat. Um, like, yeah, you know, exactly. How much is visible.
1: Yeah, it's probably all overgrown. From my memory, I'm trying to think of like, what I could even visibly see I think it was just a lot of vegetation from what I remember, but it's a bit fuzzy. That was 11 years ago now. Um, So what are the sources of our information about this Jewish colony?
0: Yeah, uh, well, thankfully uh, now um, scholars can access the pretty remarkable uh, multi-volume work uh, edited by Basil L. Porton and Ada Yardini, uh, the textbook of Aramaic documents from ancient Egypt. Uh, And those are each arranged by genre. So you can look at letters, administrative documents, um, and so on. So that's a handy go-to and pretty comprehensive gazetteer, if you will, of Elephantini documents, Aramaic documents from Egypt, of which most are from, you know, they're mostly from the island. Um, yeah. Available
1: at your local Walmart, I'm sure. It,
0: exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and there are a couple other places one might look, um, the Hermopolis letters. Uh, there's also been some re- recent and really interesting publications coming out of Berlin. Um, there's a project that's been going on there for some years uh, that's essentially trying to critically edit and publish little tiny fragmentary texts that were um, uh, exported from the island in the early 20th century kind of lost a little bit. And then um, people are now sort of paying attention to them. But so far from what I can tell, and I, you know, we'll see, but they're, they're, they're really, really, really small. Um, so they will like fill in a couple words that are missing from, you know, like the, uh, the Ahikar story or something. So nothing, nothing too, too earth shattering so far. Um, so still your, your, your local Walmart, Walmart's version of the textbook variant documents is going to be your best, best bet for elephant yeah,
1: TV. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, unless you have a sort of local, um, antiquities dealer that is selling off fragments, you might want to check them out. See if you have a little papyrus from, are these all papyrus I assume, or?
0: Yeah. Yeah. They, they are. I'm, I'm, i I'm hesitant to say they're all, but that they're the ones I can okay. think of. It's all yeah papyri.
1: Yeah, it's such a common story that in in a lot of these big finds. So this was when was this found? Like late eighteen hundreds or or so? Uh, yeah, Early there's a few. Some around there. Is,
0: yeah, right. Exactly. Mostly from the, the like, main. The main. 1901, 1911, Yeah. Okay.
1: So it's such a common story. I was just speaking with Malka Simkovich about about various um, you know discoveries, literary discoveries, and and it's you know as we were talking about like. The Cairo Geniza and uh, Saint Catherine's Monastery um, Dead Sea Scrolls. It's so common that there's a big find where you get a lot of documents, and it turns out a lot of it is on the antiquities market, or has been sold off, or taken elsewhere. And and then there's this like second phase of trying to piece together what all is floating around. Yes. So
0: yes, that, yeah, yeah, interesting. I mean, that that, that's the case. That is certainly the case. Um, yeah, and and also as with so many of these. Uh, significant finds of the late 19th and early 20th century. Um, Elephantini too is deeply implicated in um, histories of colonization and kind of Orientalizing, you know, it was sort of a race between French and Germans. They actually drew a line down the middle of the island and then we're both uh, kind of uh, trying to find, actually, they're both trying to find the find biblical fragments was what they were after uh, they did, so they were disappointed in that regard, but they did find some some other uh, very interesting and unexpected texts, you know. Um, uh, there had been some mentions, obviously, in, in the Bible, in the book of Jeremiah, about uh, Jewish communities in Egypt, even in southern Egypt, at the place that kind of, you know, Pathros, which is but, um So they were disappointed in terms of finding biblical fragments. It wasn't a Cairo Geniza story all over again. Uh, but what they did turn up was unexpected and uh, and in, in some ways um, invited a sort of revised understanding of uh, early Judaism, arguably.
1: Yeah. So how so? How so? Like what, what was surprising about the nature of these documents that were found and, and the archaeology of the site?
0: Yeah. Uh, so what was surprising was really, I mean, uh, First, there's a lot of the documents that are more administrative, shorter, um, kind of more more boring. I tell my students always that uh, the, the, the majority of documents that scholars have on tap from, from antiquity are, are dreadfully boring, just kind of administrative uh, rec- records, judicial decisions, and so on. That's true for Elephantini as well, um, but for scholars who have done the really hard legwork of piecing together the scenarios and the kind of legal customs that are ingredient in those administrative documents from Elephantini. They've discovered interesting phenomena to do with how marriages worked, how divorce worked, how property uh, inheritance worked. Um, So that's kind of one area. Um, But I'd say this much splashier uh, storyline emerging from the Elephantini documents in Aramaic uh, was this one that I've already mentioned about the destruction of their temple. Uh, and then the letters, of which there are two drafts, the they kind of practiced, uh, you know, trial run, write, write your letter uh, to try to persuade um, the authorities back in the Jewish and Samar- Samarian, Samaritan homeland uh, to basically try to finagle with the Persian authorities to authorize the rebuilding of that temple that had been destroyed. And then the sign-off via a memo, Uh, by the Persian authorities um, that, yeah, you can rebuild, but you've got to make some changes to the renewed sort of second temple on Elephantini. And so all that is very splashy and interesting um, for a number of reasons. Uh, And I would say sort of overall why Elephantini is interesting or should be interesting um, is maybe maybe three reasons, I would say. One, pedagogically, um, the way that I first Try to intro any of this to students is just to, is just to say that this is a this is sort of a wrinkle, this is a, a sort of complication in our uh, map of early Judaism, that here we have a form of worship um, that we would not otherwise have inferred that you have um, Jewish people worshiping in their own temple, which is you know forbidden according to Deuteronomy Deuteronomy and, and other kinds of cult centralization uh, kind of project. Um, they are also occasionally swearing by other deities, you know, taking oaths in a court setting by gods who are not the Lord, the biblical God. That's surprising. Um, when they take a some kind of a um, document that's co- collecting donations from the Jewish community, uh, they dedicate the, those monies um, to not just the Lord, but actually to three distinct entities uh, so it could be cult statues, could be, you know, there's a lot of debate about it, but at any rate, odd and unexpected in terms of practice. So it's just a complication. It's a sort of a, and I think that that's helpful for students, especially folks who are, who are kind of um, primed to expect that accounts one finds in, say, Ezra Nehemiah, Haggai, the kind of quote-unquote post-exilic materials is is just a, a sort of pristine and exhaustive rendition of what's happening within Judaism of that era. So at, at, at a minimum, pedagogically, what Elefantini does is to say, well, there's actually uh, more things twixt heaven and hell than your philosophy has dreamt of, or whatever that quote is from um, Hamlin or what, I don't know. Um, but at any rate, so that's pedagogically just kind of the wrinkles, complication. complication. Um, uh, it shows us that we, we have more work to do in filling out a total picture of early Judaism than only consulting Ezra Nehemiah, Haggai, etc. The other, so that's one. Two, um, and, and thinking more kind of uh, uh, historically, so religion historically, uh, Elephantini raises all kinds of questions about the emergence of Torah. So this is a very lively question, as you'll know, uh, in the study of early Judaism. Um, uh, when did the kind of practices that uh, we just see as default on the scene in say uh, the New Testament, when do those really become binding? When do those become widespread? And so, a case could be made that Elephantini is kind of an argument from silence, in that these folks don't seem to know anything about the Bible, aren't seemingly observing kind of Sabbath or dietary laws or really any of the kind of protocols to do with with marriage. Um, and so that could be could be a kind of negative witness uh, to uh, when uh, Torah is ascendant. In early Judaism. Could be. Uh, I think it's actually more complicated than that, so we can loop back to that. But that's a, a very commonplace point of view. Uh, and you had folks early on in the history of thinking about Elefantini who would say that this is sort of the QED, this is the proof of Wellhausen's hypothesis, um, the, the finding of Elephantini. So for religion historical work, it's provocative, it's interesting, it demands some kind of uh, explanation. Uh, even to the extent of perhaps um, rebalancing how we how we see early Judaism, um, there was a great article a while back uh, by my Norwegian Elephantini friend Gard Grønerud. Uh, Grenerud, I'm not sure how to pronounce his last name, but anyway, great piece of work. His work in general is great, but in JBL, uh, just about should we, in, in effect, um, should we observe a moratorium on the term? Second Temple Judaism, because that whole outlook, in effect, is sort of a secularized paraphrase of the Bible itself um, that that really uh, orbits around the Second Temple uh, versus other forms of Judaism um, that have their own temple that aren't uh, don't sort of define themselves just vis-a-vis that that one temple in Jerusalem. And so he thinks Elephantine is a good uh, sort of counter- counterbalance for just yeah
1: because he of... yeah you might have to talk about second temples judaism yeah or something I mean, judaisms yeah. or something along those lines that's right a bit more of a mouthful that's <laughs> it is to, <laughs> yeah. to say but you, you have the samaritan temple as yes. well yes yes that's uh, right up north right. and as we talked about at sbl um you know possibly one in the transjordan as well yeah so that's just what we have record of so yes. if 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 jewish people in, in the persian period have multiple temples, then at what point can we speak about second, second, third, fourth, fifth temple Judaism?
0: <laughs> right, right, that's right. Yeah, um, and and that's a case where it could be our theory um, runs up against some data that uh, it fits fairly awkwardly, and so we need to reconceptualize. How do we talk about early Judaism? In ways that don't make Elephantini kind of this exotic, bizarre phenomenon, but just sort of part of the whole landscape of, of Judaism. And so maybe Second Temple Judaism as a term um, sort of shoehorns our expectations in ways that, that make Elephantini seem like a, weirder than, than it ought. Um, mm-hmm. So that's good. That's and, then,
1: and then later, the, uh, the temple at Leontopolis. Yeah, as well. I don't really know much about it. I just know that it's, it's referenced. And I don't think there's, is there any archaeological evidence from that one?
0: Not that I no, I Well, I don't know about it. Not that I've yep. read about it. I've only read the kind of literary artifacts mm-hmm. around that yeah.
1: temple. Yeah, great. And then your third one?
0: Yeah, third one is, and this is of more recent interest to me, uh, just the kind of meta theory around Elephantini. Yeah. Um, hmm. Which is why why is it so uh, engaging to scholars? What is it, and what does it mean that it was in in search of the Bible that Elephantini sort of grew to any kind of a you know became a scholarly point of conversation, um, and how does it even now draw a lot of its energy, a lot of its uh, foci? from the Bible proper. And so it really is kind of a study in a para-biblical kind of sociology of knowledge type of, type of thing. Um, And, and in that way, again, I think uh, it, uh, it it's an occasion for religion historians to really think through what they, what we are doing um, vis-a-vis the Bible. Uh, And are we just kind of doing Bible like, things with a literature that's very, very similar in certain ways or shares certain characters or share certain, uh, you know, points of attention and discourse with the Bible. Um, so, yeah, it's kind of a meta meta phenomenon. I think it's interesting, too.
1: Yeah. And, you know, in some ways, I find that inescapable, you know, like I'm drawn to Elfantini because I'm saying it your way now, um, to, because of uh, my interest in Persian period biblical literature, and is the concern there that that sort of biblical focus misconstrues what that place represents or what its literature is, or you know, what what is the concern with that?
0: Yeah, that's a very good question. I think that a lot of people, a lot of the people in the Elephantine network, um, and it's you know, it's not a mm-hmm. it's not a big uh, group. Um, they're
1: they're in every city. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the elephantini
1: uh, network uh, yes it's <laughs> like a conspiracy <laughs> i th-
0: i think that a lot of the scholars who work on elephantini would um would share that kind of concern that somehow there's mm-hmm. contamination from from the canonicity of the bible but that leaks over onto elephantini and kind of obscures some of the dynamics that are at play with elephantini that's actually not i don't I mean, yes, that's what, I, I agree. That's we should be, you know, watch out. Um, but my um, concern, actually, along that axis, looks the opposite way. That I think you have a lot of scholars who are ostensibly, ostensibly um, working to do religion historical reconstruction, and end up doing theology. They want to sort of make claims about um, ethics, about empire, about God. Um, but they do it sort of cryptically through Elephantini scholarship, and so that's that's been one of my perhaps idiosyncratic uh, sort of calls to the to the Elephantini network has been um, how how much are we just doing theology, even kind of biblical theology, but just substituting in a different uh, literature.
1: What what would be an example of doing that?
0: So. Uh, another really great recent work. Um, actually, I think you could say this probably for several of the recent books, and it's kind of been a book a year on Elephantini in the last five or seven years. Uh, but, uh, some of the recent books, I'm thinking of Bob Becking, Carol Vandertoorn's books, uh, which are really, really wonderful, close, detailed, sort of erudite. Um, but also do, I think, have somewhat of a constructive Interest, let's say, and that is, uh, especially in Bob Becking's case, um, he's thinking about multicultural societies. How can societies composed of various ethnic groups, various religious traditions, how can they cohabit successfully for the long term? And so he finds an Elephantine example of a community that was multi-ethnic that was i don't know if multi-religious multi-religious might be pretty anachronistic i mean multi-ethnic might be too uh but at any rate bringing diverse worship traditions into the same you know geographical space uh and but they lived. they coexisted for a century and a half or something
1: it was all pretty rosy there wasn't it
0: <laughs> yeah it was <laughs> under the shadow of the persian empire and as you know foot soldiers to suppress uh egyptian uh, sedition. Uh, but at any rate, he wants to find some kind of a positive lesson, I think, in Elephantini, in the, in the coexistence of these different peoples that, and that's a constructive interest. That's trying to say, we are also struggling to figure out how to live together, uh, in modern societies. And so Elephantini maybe can help us even though, yeah, it's, it's totally imperial. Elephantini was, that is his Persian garrison. Um, an yeah. occupying power.
1: Yeah, uh, that's a helpful example. Um, but just to go back to the temple for a moment, um, was this a temple to Yahweh, uh, or who, what do we know of the nature of this temple?
0: Yeah, it, it, it was certainly a temple um, to the, not necessarily the tetragrammaton, interestingly, but yeah. rather the uh, trito- tritogram. Tritogrammaton, I'm not sure, but the, but three letters. They they use three letters at Elephantini. Yeah. Um, Yahoo. Yahoo. I'm not sure how to pronounce it, but um, mm-hmm. but yeah. So it was the the biblical God uh, seemingly, um, and um, potentially, like I say, with uh, some some other deities in the mix. Although that is not uh, that's not sort of how most Jewish writings refer in, in shorthand to the temple. It's always the temple of of yahoo um but like i say in the collection document the donation list uh there are a couple other seemingly divine uh, beings uh who receive donations from the jewish community uh for and, and with regard to the temple so could be there were some other you know little a trio um a divine family perhaps i don't know um but something not just yahoo strictly seems seems mm-hmm. like probably the case
1: yeah, or that was at least being invoked there. Yeah. And it's right up against is it, was it right up against another temple as well? Egyptian temple?
0: Yeah, good good, uh, good memory there. It is. It's actually I mean, everything is sort of right up against it, it, each other uh, on the island. So it's all really, really packed together. In fact, um, in a recent edited volume that I had to review by, edited by Margaret former um, there's some pretty great essays in there. One by the, uh, really the Kind of premier archaeologist of the site today, Cornelius Van Pilgrim, and he talks about how the the houses were three, I think two or three stories tall, so really like packed, packed in there, and packed in in order to accommodate the sudden influx of soldiers and their families, kind of the whole you know community that that comes along when you staff a military garrison. Um, but anyway,s yeah, so super packed together, and that means that they were probably like across the street, but really, really close to the Temple of Khnum, who is the millennial Egyptian god worshipped uh, in that place.
1: Okay, yeah. Um, and, and what do you think happened to this Jewish colony once the Egyptians kind of took back over, took, you know, wrested control from the Persians? Did they flee south, north, scatter? What yeah. do you think? What's your I, hypothesis? It's
0: kind of unanswerable. I, Bob Becking thinks that some of them probably fled south into Nubia. I think there's some evidence um, based on the latest letters from the site uh, that some folks just stuck around from the Jewish community and from the Aramean community that lived cheek by jowl with them. It was also very multi-ethnic, so there are folks from Central Asia living there, folks from Anatolia, really from sort of all over, all over the place but mostly Jews and Arameans. Um, And sometimes it's hard to discern which is which because Jews get called Arameans in some contexts and vice versa. So tricky business to try to figure out exactly who is who. Um, And because as is oftentimes the case if you study like Greek garrisons, um, that certain quarters of a city will keep the name of the ethnic group that lived there even after they're no longer there. It's kind of like we have a Chinatown, but but it's not necessarily like, it's not all just Chinese people who live there anymore. It's kind of the same thing, same type of situation where you'd have a community or have a garrison, have an actual military unit that's named after a specific ethnic group. Uh, but it's anybody's guess if, if that's still the majority or even, you know, a plurality of the actual people who serve in that unit. Um, so tricky business trying to discern ethnicity in antiquity. Uh, but anyway, what happened to them? I think some of them stuck around. Um, and uh, I, I uh, there's, I, I, I would say continuity is probably with the, the varied Levantine groups living in Hellenistic Egypt. Uh, So once the Persians have withdrawn, um, then we have uh, the Ptolemies taking over in the Hellenistic period. And there are still a lot of people from the Aegean living around in, in Egyptian cities and still serving in military roles, being police, being administrators. And you have a lot of Jews obviously living in Alexandria other places kind of along the Egyptian, um, you know, along the Nile and other Levantines. So other peoples from Syria, Palestine, Transjordan, uh, who are, um, living and worshiping, have their own temples, uh, in, uh, Greek Egypt as well. Mm
1: -hmm. Well, fascinating stuff from (laughs) Elephantini.
0: I hope you think so. (laughs) You've been listening to OnScript's Biblical World podcast. If you enjoy this show, please show your support by giving us a rating on iTunes or wherever you listen. You can support the show by visiting onscript.study/donate. Until next time, keep digging.